This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. My author today can always be trusted to come up with a good yarn, which is just as well, because his latest work is entitled Trust. So, Chris Hammer, welcome back to 3CR. Good to be back, David. Scrublands, Silver, and now Trust, and the journalist Martin Skarsden finds himself investigating more than just murder, but corruption on a grand scale. You've set yourself quite a massive task here. Yeah, well, the story does kind of get big on me. I've mentioned the previous two novels because this one melds elements of them into the story through certain characters and threads. So, for example, the start of the novel is almost an echo of Silver. Martin finds this time an unconscious body rather than a corpse, and his partner, Mandalay Blonde, is implicated. Was this intentional to mirror Silver in that regard? Yeah, so it's a continuation on from Scrublands and Silver. That said, you can absolutely read Trust as a standalone. And I've been very pleased, a number of people have, who have done that, if you haven't, you could start with trust and then go back if you like it. Um, the book starts with a bang. Martin and Mandy, we find them where we left them in Silver, which is in in their lovely little sort of hideaway spot on the far north coast of New South Wales. And then whack, in the first chapter, Martin hears a scream on his phone, races to the house, deduces that Mandy has been abducted there's an unconscious policeman on the floor. And pretty soon after that, he learns that a body of an undercover policeman has been found in Sydney. A man that uh, everyone thought had escaped overseas years before with a whole pile of money. But now we find out, one, he's dead, but two, he's involved intimately with Mandy Blonde. This is something that Martin didn't know about. And right from the start, then, he's, he's wondering how far he can trust her. So that's not really a spoiler. I want to avoid spoilers. But that's all happening in about the first chapter. That's the personal level, the notion of trust and the relationship there between Martin and Mandalay and whether he can trust her. But to go back a little bit more and to set the background, we find ourselves in Sydney this time. And there are some wonderful little touches associated with the setting, as you always do. There's smoke from the fires. There are cracks in new buildings, which uh, was a recent story about the buildings in Sydney. But you even make references to a pandemic. Now, that would have been uh, put in rather late in the editing process, wouldn't it? <laughs> You're right there, David. So I, I pretty much finished the manuscript back in, say, early mid-February. And at that time, COVID was just a, a story in China, an exotic outbreak of a, a mystery disease. And, you know, the Sydney in the book, it's not the picture postcard view of Sydney. It's not the harbour and the bridge and the opera house and Bondi Beach and all that tourist side. This is a grittier inner city sort of Sydney. Um, but there's these references to the bushfires. And I was thinking, well, how can I be re referencing one big sort of disaster in the recent past, but but not the one that we're living through now. So 
what I did is I just moved the time frame of the story forward a bit. So it's immediately post-COVID. And this is a different aspect to this book than, say, the previous two. They're both set in small country towns, one in the, um, in the interior, one on the coast, but both fictional towns, totally made up. This is a real place, Sydney, but it's a rather impressionistic take on, on, on Sydney. So it's, it's a sort of a, in a sense, it's an imagined version of a real place. Now, this notion of trust is central uh, to the story. Mandalay's past catches up with her. She was once in a relationship with Tarquin Malloy when she worked at Mollison's Bank, and his body has just been found after five years. Just how was Mandalay implicated in uh, this connection with Tarquin? She was engaged to marry him. <laughs> and so this is something she hasn't told Martin. And how, how this came about in my mind as, a, as the writer, when I wrote Scrublands, I set out to write the best crime fiction book I could. And I was thinking all about the plots. But by the time I'd finished, I realised a good crime book has a lot more to it than plot. It's got character, it's got setting, it's got writing, it's got lots of different, maybe some moral and ethical aspects. But the one thing in Scrublands I really like is Martin's own personal story, his emotional journey, if you like. He changes over the course of the events in Scrublands. And that led me to think about the second book, Silver, which explains why Martin is like the way he is. And in Silver, he goes back to his old hometown. In Scrublands, he's a total outsider. But in Silver, it's his old hometown and he finds out what actually happened to him and his family when he was a child, and he comes to terms with that. And just as I was finishing, I started thinking about Mandy, and I realised there was a gap in her story. That was the seed of the idea, finding out what had happened to Mandy and having her to come to terms with it, and her learning what happened to her, her former partner, because she, like everybody else, has been under the impression he fled overseas after stealing a lot of money. So that led me to Sydney, and that then led to a story of corruption and conspiracy and high-level collusion and all those sorts of things that really do, in a sense, belong in, in a place like Sydney. Now, Tarquin is not actually who he says he is or was. In fact, this book is full of aliases and there is actually a paragraph that in some way sums it up. It gives an idea of what is taking place in terms of aliases. Only later, after Goffing has dropped him a block from the police station, does Martin reflect on the absurdity of the car park conversation, talking to a former cop whose name is not really Griff, about an undercover operative whose name was not really Tarquin Malloy, investigating a mafia captain, captain whose name is not really Harry Sweetwater. So everybody is not who they say they are. No one is trustworthy. But this is then linked to two institutions, Mollison's Bank, the notion of bank capture and money laundering. There's massive financial malfeasance, shall we say, taking place. Yes, there's several plot lines sort of happening at the same time that are interwoven. So you've got stories of crime, of white-collar crime, 
but also of murder. And at the same time, you have this emotional story that's going on about Martin and Mandy and their relationship. And one big difference in this book to the previous two, there's two points of view in this book. There's Martin's and Mandy's. And it pretty much alternates chapter by chapter, one from Martin, one from Mandy and so forth. And, and she effect, becomes an investigator in many ways, just as Martin does. She's got a lot more agency in this story, absolutely. And she's not a victim. She's got a lot of motivation. And she's just as important as Martin, if not more so. And the effect, though, of having those two points of view is a different take, if you like, a different view of, of similar events. The other effect that it has, too, is it bounces between one and the other. It means the chapters are shorter and the pace is quicker. The other institution that you've put in here is one called The Mess. What is The Mess? And do such institutions actually exist? The Mess is a kind of a, a club. It calls itself a dining club. It's of wealthy and powerful people who gather once a month for a meal. But more than that, it's a kind of influence exchange. And these organisations do exist. This is a secret club, unlike the Melbourne Club or the Savage Club or, or clubs like that. That's right. But also then, it's got so much influence in the judiciary, in the political establishment and in the police hierarchy. And so all of a sudden, it's influencing elements so much so that justice isn't being done, policing is sort of interrupted. It's actually influencing the storyline because things are brought to an abrupt halt because of the influence of the mess. Yeah, well, I don't want to give too much away, but probably suffice to say that all of these books, all the three books can just be read, if you like, as entertainment. Um, you know, there's the crime plots, then there's the personal emotional plots. And if you're looking for themes and what they're about, uh, Scrublands is about abuse in a country town, the intergenerational nature of abuse. Silver's more about greed and avarice and materialism. And trust, in that sense, is about power and the operation of power and the operation of power in the shadows. But we never know who we can trust within the police network, within the judicial network, uh, at any level. And hence, it's suitably named. This whole notion of trust is there. Trust is a kind of perfect title for the book because it goes to Martin and Mandy's relationship and how they view each other, but also how they interact, as you say, with the police, with the media, with the judiciary, with big business, etc. Yeah. Now, of course, Martin is able to bring it all to a head. As with the previous novels, the fourth estate journalism comes to the rescue and Martin is able to write an expose of all that takes place. But there is a wonderful element of humour that comes out. You've got some rather intriguing killers in this story. I like to try and make characters interesting and complex. I don't like to have, you know, a bunch of goodies and a bunch of baddies. You know, they're, so they're shades of grey. So you can have bad people that have some good elements to them. And even 
say Martin and Mandy are not as pure as the driven snow, uh, particularly Martin when he's got his journalist hat on and he's got the sniff of a good story, um, has been known to cut a few corners. With the minor characters, they start almost as a transactional plot point. Martin or Mandy needs to find out something, so someone's going to tell them what they need to know to drive the plot. But why not make those characters interesting or funny or quirky? Why not breathe some life into them? And what happens with that sometimes, David, is they start growing on me. And sure enough, later on in the book, I find them returning and you know engaging once again. And I have fun doing that. And hopefully that sort of enjoyment comes through to the readers when they're reading the books. Well, there's a level of complexity here in this novel, which is quite intriguing. We are left wondering who we can trust. We never actually know uh, because everybody seems to have either an alias or an alternative agenda. So, Chris Hammer, thank you very much uh, for talking with me again about not just trust, but the trilogy of books you now have available. The author, Chris Hammer, the latest book about Martin Skarsden is Trust, and it's an Alan and Unwin release. So thank you very much, Chris. Thank you very much, David. Thanks, David. And now it's time for my author. How do you use your phone? Just for calls, perhaps photos, or what most of us do, you may link it with other social media apps. Has the overuse ever been a problem within your family? This is where Fiona Palmer starts in her latest novel, Tiny White Lies. Welcome, Fiona. Thanks, Jen. Lovely to be here. Well, Fiona, you've written many books, but this is our first chat. The reason for this could be our locality. Where are you talking to me from? Um, I'm in my little hometown of Pingaring. Uh, which is in WA, and we're about a four-hour drive um, southeast of Perth. Uh, there's four houses in my town and a shop, so it's very small. My goodness. And the, a lot of the action in the book takes place in Bremer Bay. Where's that? So it's a three-hour drive, or three and a half, from where I am, and it's on the uh, coast. I think it's an hour and a bit drive from Albany so it's just a a little place I go there for holidays it's just magical something about the WA beaches the sand it's white and it's got that squeak to it Um, and it's just a beautiful little seaside yeah village really. Well now it's back to Perth and there are two women two mothers Nikki and Ash how do they know each other? They became friends uh, when their two daughters started the same high school together Right. The book starts with Ash reading some texts on her daughter Emily's phone. And this is where I'd like Fiona Palmer to read the first two paragraphs from the book Tiny White Lies. All right. This is quite daunting, reading out your own work. So here goes. Okay. You skanky bitch. Why do you bother coming to school? Nobody likes you. Stupid whore with a munted face like a dropped pie. Go infect some other school. Ashley's fingers were white as they gripped her daughter's iPad. Waves of nausea hit her like rough seas slapping against the side of her boat as she read message after message on her 15-year-old daughter's Instagram account. 
The more she scrolled through the obscene comments, the more her face burned hot with rage. This is, of course, cyberbullying, and it's something every mother hopes they're not going to have to cope with. Nikki has a daughter, Chloe, the same age. Her phone is used in a very different way. What's uh, Chloe into? Well, Chloe's the opposite. She's, she's all about taking millions of selfies and she's always on her phone to see how many likes she gets and pretty much obsessed watching YouTube clips on makeup and everything. She's, she's just all about the presence on um, her social media. And then her mum, Nikki, finds a few dick pics on it too. <laughs> then there's the yep. young son, Josh. What's his interests? He's a gamer. So if he's on his phone, he's playing games. If he's not on his phone, he's on his PlayStation. Um, and that's all he wants to do is just sit there and, you know, Nikki's having finding him sneaking back down to play his games all hours of the night. He'd, he'd be on it 24-7 if he could. <laughs> well, the first tiny white lie is that Ash has been fired from her jobs. So she doesn't tell anyone that's the reason she's able to join Nikki's family through the school holidays at cabins on a farm in Bremer Bay. Now, who runs this camp? It's Nikki's husband's cousin, Luke. So he's a single dad on this uh, big farm and out on his farm there's no internet service. So, of course, Nikki and Ash think that sounds magnificent. (laughs) (laughs) So what's there to do on this down there? What do they get involved with? Well, the the thing is the parents, I think they go thinking it's going to be great for their kids, um, getting them back to nature, getting them back to conversation. Um, Of course, the kids don't agree because it's murder for the first, you know, week probably because they've never been bored and had to learn how to entertain themselves before. So, of course, there's all sorts of problems with that. But um, they soon learn to build cubbies, you know, there's animals and there's the beach. Um, But it's not just the kids. I think the adults find out just how much they needed a break as well. Well, they do learn new things like birthing sheep and fishing and surfing and riding motorbikes. Look, it sounds great. But there's also time for for everybody to think about the losses. And there are losses in each family. Luke's wife, Denise, isn't there. What happened to her? Yes, she's she's left him, so um, wasn't really the life for her. And so Luke and his son have been on their own for quite a while. Um, and Luke's such a busy farmer, he doesn't have time to sort of find anyone else. And, yeah, so it, it all kind of worked out. And what about Ash's husband, Owen? Yeah, Owen, it's, I think it was about eight months since Owen's death. Uh, and he committed suicide. So Ash and her daughter, I am very much trying to deal with that. And I think Ash just thinks she's protecting her daughter by sort of, you know, tiptoeing around her and, and not really trying to bring Owen up much. And um, But I think that's the wrong thing to do. And Em just really needs to talk about her dad and what was wrong with him and the struggles they went through, whereas Ash has been sort of keeping that from everyone. I think this would be a wonderful time for you to read a paragraph from page two, please, Fiona Palmer. Okay. It's about talking honestly with teenage kids and the difficulty of doing it. Okay. Of course, Ashley had tried to talk with her to check in, but Emily's reply was always, I'm fine, Mum. 
Emily would flash her one of those smiles with the naturally red lips and straight teeth, the sort that could make the world believe she was the happiest, luckiest kid ever. Ash had been falling for it for too many years, or maybe she knew but was too scared to see the truth behind that smile. Maybe that smile was one Ash herself had worn on many occasions. Yes, being with her husband with mental problems, Ash has built up a lot of coping techniques but forgets that both Nikki and Emily, that, and this is another quote from Fiona's book, losing a parent is especially hard, especially if the parent has chosen not to be with the child. And you've really opened up a big statement there that mm -hmm. quite often, yeah, you just don't think about and think, oh, yes. So uh, how much to tell kids about suicide and, um, and, and especially the horrible cyberbullying that goes with it? You remind us about Dolly Everett, who was also another 13-year-old. Yeah, the, kid, the you know, the parents are talking about it at one point and they wanted to shield Josh, who's only, um, what was he, 12 or 13? I forget. <laughs> it's been a while. And they're deciding, oh, well, we, we don't really want to tell him, we want to shield him. And then um, you know, they pointed out that Dolly was yeah. that age and that maybe it was indeed time for them to be open about it and discuss it. Absolutely. Well, that's the kids. But Chris and Nikki are thought to be the ideal couple, but there are problems here too. This is a quote. She didn't want to be touched. She didn't want sex. She didn't want intimacy. And that could be possibly related to her self-image. What was was Nikki what was her self-image problem her she didn't like her breast you know after children quite often will have very odd uneven breasts and Nikki being the owner of a fashion design you know shop they used to wear you know try on all the dresses and bits and pieces so she's right into a fashion and she'd try on dresses that you know either you couldn't wear with a bra or whatnot and her breasts were very uneven. And most of the time she had to alter her own bras because she needed two different cup sizes. She could never just buy a bra and wear it. And it just, she didn't like looking at herself. She didn't like having to, you know, be different. And, um, yeah, just her self-image just got worse and worse. So when they got there at Brimmer Bay, Ash went into obsessive cleaning. Nikki was pleased they were sharing a hut with the kids so there was no chance of intimacy. And, the, look, the whole story is fantastic. It's the relationship building, reconnecting, etc. And you must have made those characters stand out for me because I felt with them. And I went through two very soggy tissues. <laughs> <laughs> well, I try to work on the characters. I mean, they're... Uh, as well as the scenery um, and the characters, that's where I sort of like to put all my focus on and, and their, their feelings and emotions and, and, and just what drives them. I, you know, sort of in any shared camping facility or a hotel facility, there's often the shared library. And I loved how you made it mostly Australian authors that were in that shared library that everybody could read <laughs> from, but there weren't any female authors. Oh, Fiona. Oh. I know because it was Luke's library, so I was trying to think, you know, a bit of oh, a blokish. Yeah, well, I think there's some. <laughs> anyway, it didn't work out the way they wanted. We started talking about devices, and there's a climax in the book that requires communication. 
Now, that was really clever plotting. That came from an absolute surprise. So I'm just wondering, how far into the book were you when you thought, that's the climax I wanted? Um, probably from the beginning. I, you know, I'm very much a planner and I like to know how the book's roughly going to go. And sometimes I'll have the ending sorted before the middle. So, yeah, I kind of find that, found that a bit ironic and had to go in there. <laughs> Yeah. So the tiny white lies we tell ourselves and others, are they told to protect the ones we love or are they to cover over the secrets we are embarrassed to have exposed? Look, Fiona Palmer, you've just done a ripper book here, written so many. Are they all like this? (laughs) I hope so. You know, I like to think if possible, I'm getting better and better. Uh, I think this is like my... 12th or 14th or 16th I've lost count now (laughs) well that's pretty darn good you know if you've if you can think of that many different characters to put in different settings and and make them such interesting reads so are they all kind of romance fiction books you've been definitely I I love a happy ending. Um, I can't help it. Uh, I sort of originally started writing uh, because I was a busy mum and I just wanted to read a nice, easy read book that would leave me feeling, you know, happy ever after kind of feeling. And so all my books have a touch of romance in them. Uh, My first eight are rural books set in around where I live, but they're they're not soft. Like they all deal with things from rural depression and suicide, um, uh, droughts and, uh, you know, health issues, all sorts of things. Well, and you also gave me the insight, and I had to look it up, just what a tossed salad was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I reckon there's a lot of Google happening. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Fiona Palmer, uh, author of Tiny White Lies, for chatting us he- to me here on 3CR Published or Not. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another week. And look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week. See you then. Well, let's talk then. (laughs) (laughs) You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.